Welcome to Byline. I'm Rick Howlett. Republican U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky has been coming under some fire this week for saying he's doing more for minority rights than any member of Congress right now. And a well-known former state lawmaker and civil rights activist from West Louisville is warning African-American voters not to trust the Republican senator's outreach efforts in that neighborhood. Senator Paul, of course, is a potential presidential candidate in 2016. Joining us to uh, talk about all this is WFPL political editor Philip M. Bailey. Philip, welcome back to the program. Hey, Rick. Well, uh, Senator Paul's been making uh, frequent visits, of course, to West Louisville and has opened an office in the uh, area. He's pushing for reforms in the criminal justice system, many of which would affect African-American men. How, how, is, how have his visits to West Louisville been received? I, th- I think that Senator Paul, uh, who has, like you said, made numerous uh, visits to West Louisville over the past year, uh, there's a bit of a split in the community. There are those who feel like, as Georgia Davis Powers articulated uh, in her editorial, that Paul's comments about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, that he liked all of it except the, for the provision uh, mandated that private businesses can't discriminate, for many, that is a non-starter. Uh, in fact, that's a disqualification not only for president, but a disqualification for U.S. Senate. And many activists I've talked to who said they have been invited to different forums where Senator Paul's attended said they don't want to be seen publicly with the man. Uh, there are others who, who still will say they disagree with Senator Paul and his comments about the Civil Rights Act. But uh, today, in 2014, those issues are different 50 years later. Uh, issues of charter schools, school choice. Uh, issues of U.S. drug laws and sentencing around that, uh, issues that are directly affecting the African-American community today matter more uh, than what they see largely as an academic debate about uh, the civil rights bill. So Senator Paul, while he's building this portfolio uh, for for legislation, with whether it's with Cory Booker or Patrick Leahy uh, that he's doing today, I think that there still is sort of this divide on him uh, and, ha- and how to perceive him in the black community. Senator Powers, uh, former Senator Powers, had an uh, op-ed about uh, Senator Paul, and uh, Paul responded with an op-ed of his own, right? Yes, uh, he responded in in kind, and when he was confronted with that, he was in West Louisville on Monday uh, visiting uh, the Reverend Jerry Stevenson's church uh, and his uh, Village Center education program over the summer, Um, and and he was asked, Paul was asked about Senator Powers uh, and and her editorial. He said it was harsh. He felt, you know, it was simply the rhetoric of a partisan, and that's where he said, Uh, Quote, I don't think there's anybody in Congress doing more for minority rights than I am right now. Uh, That story got a lot of national attention, uh, Rick. Uh, The Democratic National Committee and others uh, chimed in. Uh, I spoke with uh, Congressional Black Caucus Vice Chair uh, Congressman uh, G.K. Butterfield, who said pretty much Senator Paul doesn't have a distinguished civil rights record. so more and more, more folks took, sort of took offense to that, and, and even those who are close to Paul have, have admitted to me that that might not have been the best statement at the time while he's trying to make these outreach efforts. So, so for Paul, sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. Sometimes it's four steps forward, two steps back. It's, it's a, a tug of war for a Republican who has admitted for at least the past two years that if the GOP wants to remain competitive nationally uh, in presidential elections, it needs to change the numbers uh, with black voters. What's in this legislation that he is co-sponsoring with uh, Senator Booker? Uh, the Redeem Act, as it's called, with, like you said, with uh, Congress—I mean, excuse me, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey—it it aims to ch- make some changes to the criminal justice system, particularly with juveniles, uh, making some modifications there, like, for example, saying that we shouldn't do solitary confinement uh, for juveniles, lifting the ban on uh, food stamps for those with low-level uh, drug offenses. So it is a compromise bill. It isn't given much of a chance uh, to pass uh, in, in the Senate. Uh, but it is seen as sort of this, you know, Cory Booker is no one's conservative. He's a pretty liberal congressman from New Jersey who's also a member of the 
Congressional Black Caucus who praised Paul uh, and, and working with him. What's interesting, Ricky, in all of this is where Paul's making these inroads and this debate about him nationally and locally. Uh, a recent Bluegrass poll showed that Senator Paul in a head-to-head matchup, mock matchup for president with Hillary Clinton here in Kentucky, he actually gets 29% of the African-American vote. Hmm. Now, that certainly isn't anything close to a victory, uh, anywhere close to 51%. But when you take into account that a Republican president, presidential candidate hasn't received more than 15% of the black vote since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and that John McCain and Mitt Romney got about 6 to 8%, uh, that George W. Bush sort of topped out at 11%, 29% is, is pretty good for uh, a first-term U.S. senator with, with a controversial past. Has Paul given any indication at this point where he's leaning as far as a running in 2016? I think it's pretty clear that, that Senator Paul hasn't said publicly he's running for president, but he's making all the necessary moves. His PAC, RAND PAC, has hired a field operative to organize uh, in Iowa. He recently announced one in New Hampshire. Uh, you're getting a trend here where he's visiting New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, and his PAC hap- just happens to be hiring folks to work in those states. I think that's a telltale sign you know, that you're running for president. That, that's one office, Rick, where you can't hide that you're running for it. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, another uh, topic, the uh, Indiana governor's office this week said the state wouldn't recognize hundreds of same-sex marriages performed in late June before a court halted a decision that had lifted the uh, state's ban. And uh, that has drawn some criticism from a, uh, a prominent Democrat in Indiana, the Marion County Clerk, which, uh, of course, covers Indianapolis, who's also running for Secretary of State. And you talked to her this week. Yeah, uh, Marion County Clerk Beth White, uh, who it was sort of surprising to me. Rick, you cover Indiana politics as well. I don't know if, if Democrats have ever had a candidate running for statewide office who has a prominent one, at least, with a good chance of winning, who's taken such a vehement position in favor of marriage equality. Uh, as as Beth White has, she says that she's disappointed in the governor's decision ordering agencies not to recognize uh, those same-sex marriages that were performed between the days when the initial federal court ruling struck down the state ban and before the appeals court had stayed that order. So for, for that 48-hour period from June 25th to 27th, uh, there were dozens of, of gay couples in uh, Marion County and probably hundreds across the state who were legally wet, paid their fee, uh, signed their license, I mean, did everything else that they needed to do. So who have, in a, essence, a legal marriage, while the governor is saying don't recognize that uh, in the meantime. So Beth White took a, a pretty strong stance in saying that, you know, the Secretary of State has nothing to do uh, with marriage, but it does have something to do with business climate. And she she believes, Ms. White believes, that essentially by taking this position, the governor is saying that Indiana is not a welcoming place for LGBT folks which would turn off businesses uh, or, or families or others who have uh, gay individuals in their families and, and sort of goes against the idea of Indiana as a welcoming place. It's going to be an interesting campaign topic uh, as we get closer to the fall election. She's running against the uh, Republican incumbent, Connie Lawson. Right? Yeah, Connie Lawson. And, and like once again, I said, it was not that long ago where Joe Donnelly, the U.S. senator from Indiana when he was campaigning, was for traditional marriage. Made that pretty clear throughout the campaign. Six months ago or so, when a number of, of Democrats and Republicans had come out in favor of marriage equality, uh, Donnelly was one of them who said, you know, my position on this has changed. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if this benefits White's candidacy, where not only in the short period of time the public has changed its views tremendously on gay marriage, but that Democratic officials at least will, will warm to the idea, but also run on the idea of marriage equality. And uh, moving back here to Kentucky, some uh, early fundraising reports are in from the uh, gubernatorial race. We have two uh, declared candidates thus far, and the 
Uh, Republican Hal Heiner has uh, lent himself a lot of money. Yes, about four million dollars <laughs> worth. Uh, I guess when you have that when you have that type of money to loan, it means you must have a whole bunch more. Uh, but Republican <laughs> Hal Heiner, who folks here would recognize, as a former mayor or candidate and member of the Louisville Metro Council, been out of the public eye a little bit, but he's running for governor. He's the only Republican in the race. He loaned himself. Uh, his his own campaign, uh, four million dollars. So he's raised about four point three uh, thus far. Uh, that means he has a pretty substantial lead as far as cash on hand, about three point nine million dollars. Uh, whereas other Republicans are, have still yet to make a decision. Although Heiner's entry in the race forces them to to make an earlier decision. I think you'll see James Comer make a decision pretty soon here as well on whether he's going to run for governor or not. Uh, so, you know, obviously opponents will say, "Oh, this is how Heiner buying the race." But I think supporters of Heiner will say. This is him getting out early, getting his message out. He's already run a TV ad. So certainly he's, he's as a Louisville candidate, needs to be out there in the state as much as possible uh, in this, in this early, early 2015 race. And about 30 seconds left, Jack Conway, the, the only Democrat thus far to declare, has uh, raised $750,000. Now, compared to Heiner, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. But in the short time since he's announced, that's quite a bit. Yeah, and, and unlike Heiner, uh, Jack Conway hasn't put any of his personal wealth into the race. To raise $750,000 in, in really less than two months, about seven weeks since he announced, uh, was a pretty impressive uh, announcement by Conway, who, like I said, is the only you know, Democratic candidate in the race. Mm-hmm. So just like with Heiner, that's an attempt also to, I think, scare off competition to let them know if you are going to get in this race, you're already behind substantially on the money game. Philip M. Bailey is WFPL's political editor. Philip, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to Byline on WFPL. Three administrators at Louisville Mayo High School, including the principal, could have their teaching certificates revoked or face other disciplinary measures following allegations that they helped students cheat on an ACT test. The results of a report from the State Education Department were released this week, and WFPL's Jake Ryan has been covering this story. Jake, welcome back to the program. Hello, Rick. So uh, what are these administrators, uh, who are they, first of all, and what are they accused of doing? There's three administrators that have been accused of um, misconduct when it comes to administering the ACT test, ACT Compass test at Louisville Mill High School. They're the principal, David Mike, a counselor, uh, Rhonda Branch, and a teacher, Debbie Greenberg. Uh, the principal, David Mike, has been put on administrative duties at Central Office, the counselor is on summer break, and uh, the teacher, David Greenberg, has retired since the allegations have came out. To understand the situation, it's been a long-going case. We have to go back to December. On December 6th, the ACT officials received a couple complaints from Louisville Mill High School that, that students were receiving help on the test, that teachers were coming into the, to the, to the, to the area of the school where the practice tests were going on, and they were kind of helping, they were coaching the students through the practice test. They were encouraging the students to take notes on the practice test, take them back to the classroom, and then let the, let the teachers kind of help them work out those issues that they may have. Uh, it, it raised a lot of concerns. ACT got in touch with the K- Kentucky Department of Education a few days later, and they began their joint investigation. And uh, that has led us kind of to where we are now. Uh, just recently, Terry Holiday sent a, a letter to uh, JCPS Superintendent Donna Hargens that, that said, that outlined the findings of, of the investigation. There's more than 40 findings of the investigation of violations um, that really relate to the exact complaints that ACT initially, uh, initially got. T- uh, students said that they were receiving help. All the students said that everybody kind of knew what was going on, that you take notes, you share your notes. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a weird, a weird situation. 
And as I mentioned at the top, uh, they face, if, if uh, they're found uh, guilty or there is a finding of guilt, uh, up to and including having their teaching certificates revoked, right? Yeah, those th- all three uh, people from the school have been had their names submitted to the Educational Professional Standards Board, which is the board that issues uh, teaching certificates to the state. And they, quite frankly, they could have... Uh, all the work they put into in this career, it could be meaningless if they these certificates are revoked. The the review of the the teacher, the counselor, and the principal, it could be a quick review or it could take it could be a lengthy review. Um, so what's going to come of that is still yet to be seen. And for those who don't know, ACT is the, is a college preparatory test. It is. It's not the same as the ACT college entrance exam. The mm-hmm. ACT Compass test is more of, of a test that kind of uh, it gets students up to the college and career readiness levels that schools like to see. Uh, the reason that it, it's it's questionable to cheat on this test is because it, it boosts your your school your school score, so to say. Mm-hmm. You're, you get a higher level of college and career readiness, um, which isn't actually reflective of what's going on in the school. And this is a state investigation we've been talking about, but Jefferson County Public Schools officials are uh, also conducting their own probe into this, right? Yeah, they are. They also helped KDE when it came down to student interv- uh, student interviews and staff interviews. Uh, they found out that students were kind of coached into what to say. Staff were, were coached into what to say to the investigators. So they're also looking into this as well. Jake Ryan covers education and just about everything else for uh, <laughs> WFPL. Jake, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. And we'll be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Howlett. Gas prices in the Louisville area have been at or above the $4 mark per gallon for much of the summer, with many motorists complaining that the prices are considerably cheaper in surrounding communities and similar-sized cities in the region. We've been hearing this for years. Soaring gas prices six years ago prompted Attorney General Jack Conway to launch an investigation and WDRB's Chris Otts has launched his own investigation. He's been looking into it and joins us now <laughs> to tell us uh, what he found. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, Rick. Thank you. doesn't seem to really be a one simple answer here, but it appears that it really boils down to a lack of competition in this region. Yeah, actually, uh, to, to hear the Attorney General's office say it, it really is a simple answer. <laughs> Uh, They say that Marathon Petroleum uh, has a monopoly on the supply of wholesale, uh, the wholesale supply of gasoline. So no matter where you're filling up, whether it's, you know, BP or Mm -hmm. Shell or wherever, you're likely buying Marathon gas is what the attorney general said in an op-ed for the courier uh, last summer. Um, They determined this six years ago, essentially, but they say that it's actually federal regulators, specifically the Federal Trade Commission, that has the power to do something about this. It's an antitrust issue that spans many states. And so far, there's really been no indication that the FTC thinks that there's anything to it because they they have not done anything. And they won't uh, answer any questions about it, right? No, they will not. Not (laughs) at all. Um, They won't confirm whether they're investigating or whether they have investigated and closed anything or whether they've even looked at something. Um, basically, we just have to go on the attorney general side of it saying that he's sent them the information, uh, but they were, were not really forthcoming with any information. So I'm sure you reached out as well to uh, Marathon slash Ashland. What do they say about all this? Not very much. Um, their spokeswoman noted that the FTC has looked at the issue of whether there is a monopoly several times. She didn't specifically say there's not a monopoly or, you know, we we reject, you know, this assertion. But she just basically said the FTC hasn't done anything about it. So the implication being there's no problem. 
And there's also the, the issue of reformulated gasoline. This is right. a uh, to, right. to cut down on pollution. Sure. It, it's kind of interesting. There were two changes that happened in the 1990s uh, that seemed to at least be playing somewhat of a role in the gas prices. One is the uh, Marathon and Ashland joint venture that sort of consolidated the, the market for wholesale supply in Louisville, put the two refineries that are sort of equidistant from Louisville under the same control. And the other is the move to reformulated gasoline, which is a little bit more expensive um, to make. Uh, and that happened in the 1990s as well. And there are other markets that, that have RFG. St. Louis is one of them. And in the prices I looked at, you know, St. Louis is not as high uh, as Louisville over, over the last year. Of course, you have differences in taxes that are kind of baked mm-hmm. in there. So the comparison is not is not perfect. Uh, but everyone acknowledges that RFG at least adds a little bit to the cost. And actually, an economist I talked to said that one thing that's possibly going on here is that RFG sort of limits the market. So if you only have some refiners who are making this specific blend that is used here, it's not as easy to substitute other forms of supply into the market. You can't just truck up gas from Tennessee into Louisville to, you know, even out the market. I see tweets from people, especially during this time of year, and they, they uh, sure. of the price of gas out in Elizabethtown, Bartstown, or wherever, compared to uh, Louisville, and it's, it's quite quite a difference. It is quite a uh, difference. Yeah. I've, I've noticed it myself, you know, uh, just coming back this weekend, coming north, uh, down 65, just south of Indianapolis, 356, and as soon as I got into the orbit of Louisville, it's 389. And I've noticed the same thing coming up uh, from Bullitt County, from you know, from the southern side. Uh, it, it's just kind of a remarkable thing that really makes you scratch your head and say, "Why is this?" Has Attorney General Conway expressed any frustration with the FTC? Has he been trying to get them to? In fact, them he has. Action? I didn't talk with him for my story, but I noticed that he uh, did an interview with uh, CN2 just this week, where he said he was very angry about the lack of action at the federal level, and that's not only on the, the FTC's part, but also uh, the Justice Department, which has a oil and gas task force that he has also tried to get them to step in. Uh, but so far, there's no apparent action on the federal level. And they, the attorney general's office is sort of weighing whether they can pursue a state action. But that's not clear whether whether there is a good claim there or whether they'll move forward with that. Well, hypothetical, if the FTC finds there's some sort of antitrust violations, what, what sort of action could they take? Well, hypothetically, they could force uh, some divestiture divestiture of assets uh, on the part of Marathon say you have to sell certain things so that you know the concentration is not as big um, that that's one action they could take I'm not sure about the other actions but that's one that's been mentioned but again there's no indication that the FTC thinks that there is a problem and you touched on this uh, retailers really can't feasibly buy cheaper gas especially this RFG uh, solution from other refiners outside the region. Right. The the supply is sort of limited in that um, the requirement uh, makes it such that you can't just, you know, the gas that's sold in, in Nashville or Bowling Green can't just be substituted into the Louisville market. When, when can we expect uh, gas prices to kind of start going down? <laughs> well, if I knew that, I'd be uh, uh, trading on the yeah, commodities exactly. futures and uh, making a lot more money than I am now. Well, they seem to drop after Labor Day uh, for a while. Sure. And, and the last time that we've sort of seen the prices hover at this $4 uh, a gallon mark, well, actually, even more than that, in 2008, it really got up to 4.30 a gallon or so in Louisville. And that's really 
what got people, you know, very upset and sort of triggered this initial inquiry um, into this, which, you know, Jack Conway was involved, but also uh, then Mayor Abramson, Congressman Yarmouth and Governor Bashir were all involved in, in trying to look at this and unpack what's going on here back in 2008. So uh, we can expect them to go down later this year, I would think. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a speculator either. And then the Derby Week, we always get the, the complaints coming in about right. going back up. Yeah, as soon as they go up, everyone wants to know what, what the heck is going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not a lot has changed over the years. But, you know, I just thought it was a good time to, to look at this and see, you know, what's the long-term view. And you can read uh, Chris Ott's work at WDRB.com. Excuse me, Chris, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. This is Byline on WFPL. Earlier this year, the Indiana approach to the Big Four pedestrian and bicycle bridge opened a great fanfare. People can now cross the Ohio River into Jeffersonville or the other way into Louisville's Waterfront Park. Now city and waterfront officials here in Louisville have their eye on another railroad bridge to the west, the K&I which has been closed to public access for decades. Officials say opening the K&I to pedestrian traffic would be ideal for completing a recreational trail that's being developed, but the bridge's owner is resisting allowing public access. Grace Snyder has been reporting on this for the Courier-Journal, and I spoke to her earlier. So who owns the K&I bridge? Uh, Norfolk Southern Corporation, which is a railroad based in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So uh, city and waterfront development officials say uh, this could be really an integral part of this uh, recreational trail that would also encompass the existing Big Four Bridge, right? Right. The river walk uh, on the Louisville side would be one part of the trail, and then the Ohio River Greenway, which is still under development on the Indiana side, would be the other part of the loop. And the trail, roughly about 13.1, 13.2 miles, would be... Big Four down the uh, either side and then across the, the K&I would make a, an awesome loop, according to riverfront, waterfront officials. And Norfolk Southern is resisting doing anything with this. Norfolk Southern has said, Rick, all the way from the very beginning that they cannot allow pedestrian or, or any sort of bike traffic, even motorized traffic on this. They use it for their own uh, motorized traffic uh, that's been seen from the air several times. But as far as allowing any kind of public access, they've been saying that they cannot handle the liability and they're concerned about safety. And more recently, homeland security issues have been raised about whether you would want people on a bridge that is so key to interstate rail traffic. And there was a fire on the bridge recently, and I guess they point to that as well. Well, we actually gave them that opening saying, you know, given the fire on the bridge and things like that, and they didn't really bite. I think that they still feel like they've got plenty of cards under federal law and federal regulation to allow them to continue the sort of hard stance that we really cannot consider opening this bridge. Now, does it look like the city will, will continue to press them on this, and, and what options would they have? Well, the the county uh, attorney's office asked Frank Miller Jr., who is a former general counsel for the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet, to examine various legal obstacles, especially if they use eminent domain. And Miller returned a, a very detailed, uh, interesting report in May, mid-May, and uh, it's been shared with city officials and obviously David Karam at Waterfront Development, um, just detailing how really difficult this would be for them to 
supersede federal regulations that have been uh, consolidated in the Interstate Commerce Commission Terminal Termination Act, the ICCTA, um, that basically says that railroads uh, don't have to open their facilities or their right-of-ways to anything that would impede their business. Now, this bridge was uh, uh, once open to motor vehicle traffic, but it's been closed for decades. Yeah, the... Let's see. It was opened in 1886, and at that time, obviously, there were, cars hadn't been invented. But this, the two cantilevered sides of the bridge, were set up for wagon traffic and other types of traffic that would not be rail traffic. So you've got two tracks, plus you've got cantilevered um, lanes on both sides that are about the width wide enough for for one. Vehicle and yeah, Rick. In 1979, the 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 bridge had been open to vehicular traffic because it was part of US 150 and and 31, and people used it back and forth to Louisville. I even had a neighbor tell me she used to go over on Sundays to Portland to buy cold beer because you couldn't <laughs> buy it. You um, still can't. Yeah, all right. Some places. You I can, just yeah. wish we had that K and I open for that. <laughs> anyway. Um, so in 1979, after decades of being open to vehicle traffic, uh, an overweight dump truck crashed, did a bit of damage, and the, the railroad then shut it down. No more vehicles, and, and that was it. I know there was some talk of uh, allowing some limited traffic during the closure of the Sherman Minton Bridge, but that never happened as well. Right. So are, are there other bridges um, around the, the country on, on which rail traffic and pedestrians do, do coexist? Yeah, there's two uh, examples that the Rails to Trails Conservancy, um, which is one of those advocacy groups that really pushes for converting uh, former rail tracks and right away to pedestrian use. They mention one in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, that is part of this wonderful nas- national park. Plus, there's a, a separate one, uh, another one in Portland, Oregon, where rail and pedestrian traffic coexist side by side, and they have many ideas to offer communities and railroads uh, ways to safely cordon off these areas so you don't have people climbing onto the train and that sort of thing. All right. Well, we uh, shall see what happens. Grace Schneider's been writing about uh, the possible use of the K&I Bridge for pedestrian traffic, uh, writing for the Courier-Journal. Grace, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This past Wednesday marked the 164th anniversary of the death of President Zachary Taylor. The 12th president grew up in the Louisville area and is entombed here in the National Cemetery that bears his name. The 65-year-old Taylor, also known as Old Rough and Ready, was just 16 months into his presidency when he suddenly fell ill. Rumors abounded for years that he may have been poisoned, which we'll get to shortly. The Courier-Journal's James Carroll recounted Taylor's final days in a piece this week, and he joins us now from the CJ's Washington Bureau. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, it was a hot July 4th, and uh, President Taylor went out to a, to a ceremony, appeared to be in good health, but uh, suddenly fell ill. What happened to him? Yeah, well, you know, he was 65, yeah. which uh, we're talking 1850. So <laughs> uh, by the standards of the time, he was uh, probably already uh, getting up there uh, in years uh, for um, for that time frame and, you know, the general life expectancy of people. Um 
he was known as rough and ready because of his um, time in the Mexican-American War. Um, but uh, in truth, you know, uh, one of the interesting things I came across when I was uh, researching this was the year before, when he had uh, not long after he'd become president, he really wasn't very familiar with the northeastern part of the United States, so he started making a tour around the northeastern uh, states. And during that tour, he had uh, severe uh, gastrointestinal distress. And uh, at one point, he was so debilitated he could barely walk. Mm. And eventually they cut the trip short, and he came home, and he recovered, and everything seemed to be fine. But, you know, you wonder if that might have been the first uh, warning signs of something that was going on. So here you had this really, really blistering, hot, and humid day in Washington. Gee, what a surprise, right, in the middle of July. <laughs> and uh, and he was out there under the sun for several hours and um, drank a lot of cold water, apparently, um, and may at that time have even had some... Um, uh, some fruits or vegetables of some kind, but when he got back to the White House, he apparently had a lot of uh, cherries and other berries, and according to some accounts, maybe cucumbers. On he was eating a lot of. He said he was very hungry, so he he had quite a bit of food, and then he had dinner, and apparently had hit the cherries again pretty hard. Um, and then it was around midnight when things started going going wrong, and he kind of powered through the next day uh, fairly well. Even conducted some business. He signed the 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 one treaty that really his presidency is known for, which sort of set out some um, terms for um, um, U.S.-British relations uh, regarding the Isthmus in Central America, where they were thinking about building a canal. Um, so that was fairly forward thinking. But in any case, um, by July 6th, two days after this, uh, he'd first uh, started feeling poorly, he was really sinking fast. And um, various doctors came in and assaulted him with the um, known medicine of the time, which was probably of no help whatsoever and, and very possibly a, a detriment. Uh, I think they also bled him, which, of course, was a standard treatment for almost everything, which, of course, if you're already not feeling well, um, nothing like taking some of your energy away. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, by uh, July 9, uh, he was he himself felt like, you know, this was going to take him away and even asked the doctors, you know, how long did I have? And the doctors thought about lying to him and just said, well, probably not very long. And he said, I, I figured it as much. And um, he died on July 9, 1850, much to the shock of the nation. Um, you know, people had, uh, they'd already gone through the loss of a president nine years earlier when William Henry Harrison had died in office. So this was the, the second time in a decade where this had happened. An uh, interesting fact that you write about that uh, among those, uh, at, I assume at his bedside, was uh, his son-in-law, Jefferson Davis. Isn't, isn't that something, yeah. that, you know, the historical... Uh, coincidences or, or footnotes that people don't know about. Uh, Davis had married one of uh, Zachary Taylor's daughters, who had uh, passed away, actually, I think of malaria, uh, not long after they married, but he still had a close relationship with, with Taylor. Uh, yes, so he was there. Um, so were Taylor's, the rest of Taylor's surviving children, including a son named uh, uh, Dick Taylor, and uh, this sort of has an interesting, another interesting historical circle. Dick Taylor would uh, later, first of all, Zachary Taylor was known, uh, one, of the, one of the things he was known for was, even though he was a slaveholder uh, and, and had grown up in Kentucky, he was a very strong Union guy, supported the, keeping the Union together, and even had threatened to take military action against those who thought about seceding from the Union. Now, this is in 1850. Mm. Um, ironically, it would be Taylor's son, Dick Taylor, who um, became a Confederate general uh, under Jefferson Davis, son-in-law of Zachary Taylor. <laughs> uh, and Dick Taylor's home uh, in Louisiana 
was the repository of um, his father's papers, um, Zachary Taylor's mo- most of or very many of his personal papers, and the home was set afire uh, during the Civil War. Uh, and burned, and we lost a lot of uh, Zachary Taylor's personal papers. And for historians, of course, a great tragedy because more insights into Taylor and his his life and his thinking and people he, he corresponded with all, all that was lost to history, which has probably had something to do with, as well with the um, low stand, low ratings he gets from a lot of historians. But it, you know, it's hard to put all this together um, without having a lot of good documentation. So. Anyway, pretty pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it is. Now there was always this uh, cloud or this uh, these rumors that uh, he was poisoned, and that uh, came to a head, I guess, about twenty years ago when uh, somebody from his family agreed to have him exhumed and tested. That's right, and they they actually removed him from the crypt there in Louisville, uh, and uh, they took samples of uh, hair, fingernails, and I believe his bones, some bones had them tested at a lab, and they did find traces of arsenic, but that wasn't too surprising given the fact that um, a lot of medicines at the time in 1850 apparently had some elements of arsenic. Mm. Um, Embalming fluid is also used as arsenic. Uh, And and the other significant fact is that um, almost everybody, um, uh, according to scientists, we consume some level of arsenic um, just by being on this planet. Um, none of those levels of arsenic were considered, uh, you know, at levels anywhere near that would be fatal. So they basically uh, concluded um, in 1991 that uh, he was not poisoned. Uh, Zachary Taylor most likely died from all the symptoms people were, were talking about at the time of some kind of a gastrointestinal, uh, acute gastrointestinal um, problems. And um, that took him away. And if they probably, you know, there's even speculation that if the doctors had left him alone, um, that uh, and certainly not bled him, and maybe not have given him a lot of things that were forcing him to, get, you know, vomit and do other things, that perhaps he would have uh, powered through that one and perhaps might have lived longer. And then we wonder, of course, we speculate what would have happened in the ensuing years that we now know, of course, led up to the breakout of the Civil War. Uh, but if Zachary Taylor was still alive, you wonder how events would have been influenced by his presence in the White House. Did he, uh, is he known for doing anything? Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the uh, treaty that he signed. Uh, anything else noteworthy that he's remembered for? Well, that was you know he was he came into the White House as a hero of the Mexican Mexican American War, and then he was one of the you know the, the many generals that, from time to time in our history, have been elected to the White House. Uh, really on the basis of their military exploits. And, and that was really um, why the country held him in such high esteem. Um, but uh, in the White House, you know, again, he had a short time there. Um, and, and from what I can gather reading, you know, quite a bit of the different historical assessments of his presidency, besides the fact it was short, um, he, he could be uh, credited in some way really with um, taking a strong stand in, in terms of, um, you know, opposing any ideas about Southern secession. Uh, he really opposed uh, expanding uh, slavery westward. Again, he was a slaveholder, but I think there was a practical consideration and a political consideration. The practical one was he, he thought that a lot of the crops that were grown in the South, they wouldn't grow out west anyway, and they were not, you know, that slavery, you couldn't use slaves to uh, first of all, the crops wouldn't grow, so there'd be no point in having slaves out there anyway. And then I think from a political standpoint, he could see you know, where things were going. He was kind of a funny guy. He, he didn't share a lot of his thoughts until he took action. So people had a hard time reading him. But, so you have to impute some of the things. But, but he was very clear on the fact that he believed in keeping the union together and that he would, uh, since he was a general, 
people believed him when he said he'd use uh, force to uh, to uh, prevent secession. Got about a minute left. I, back to that, his, him being exhumed and examined. I don't know if you were here at the time, but that was a huge media circus uh, when when that went. It was. On. I was not there, but I I was fully aware of it because uh, some, I have a great interest in presidential history, yeah. and I, I wish I had been there. But uh, it, yes, people all around the country were following this. Um, Matter of fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was um, I was engaged to be married at that time, and um, at my bachelor party, somebody uh, presented me as a joke with uh, sort of one of those fake arms and hands, you know, and it had uh, Zachary Taylor's initials on the cuff of the sleeve. It was just sort of a because they knew I was just in presidential history, so they presented me with Zachary Taylor's arm. So, it was, <laughs> so but that was so it was very much in the consciousness of the whole country back in 1991. It sure was. If I recall correctly, I think the medical examiner George Nichols, someone tried to break into his office uh, and and steal the results. <laughs> Is that right? Oh out. Yeah, I don't know if they ever uh, made an arrest in that or <laughs> accused anybody. But uh, anyway, well, that's fascinating stuff, uh, Jim. Jim Carroll with the Courier Journal at the uh, Courier's uh, Washington bureau. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. This is Byline on WFPL. Well, this week also marked uh, another important milestone, this one in Kentucky political journalism. So not all the speeches at this weekend's Fancy Farm Picnic were newsworthy, but the weekend worth of political events were dotted. That's Ryan Alessi who signed off for the final time this week on Pure Politics, the CN2 program he's hosted for several years. And where he's been the senior managing editor. Alessi is leaving broadcast journalism at least full-time to uh, enter the academic world as a student at Murray State University. And I believe that's where he is on the phone now. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Rick. How's it going? I'm fine. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm fine. I just got my first student ID I've had in 15 years. So. <laughs> now, you're not going to live in the dorm, on you? Are you you're gonna, you got your own place out there? That's right. Actually, uh, one of the things that one of the reasons why I'm here in Murray is my wife has been living and working down here for two years. And so I am finally joining her. So that's uh, that kind of precipitated this move. So what will you be studying at Murray State? I'm going to be getting my master's in uh, fine arts in uh, nonfiction writing. And, uh, of course, a couple people uh, used to, uh, were, were gigging me at the Capitol saying, oh, you're finally going to write nonfiction now, huh? Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I, I am. Uh, so that way I can still stay in journalism and do some freelance. In fact, I'll still be doing some work for CN2 and maybe some other media outlets. Uh, I, I can't stay too far away from politics. I'm a political junkie. Well, I understand that. And, of course, you're not uh, very far from uh, Fancy Farm as well out there. That's right. That will officially be in my backyard now. So, Okay. Well, uh, CN2 has announced your successor, and uh, I'll let you announce who that is. Yeah, Nick Storm, yeah. who has done an excellent job as our political reporter for the last two and a half years, has taken over the anchor desk. He took over Thursday, the, the night after I left. My last show was Wednesday. And he took over Thursday. Uh, he's he, before that he was at WFIE in Evansville, and so he's very familiar with the Kentucky, Indiana area. He's done just a fantastic job, and he gets what we had have, have done at CN2, which is to provide as much context as possible. Uh, you know, get the facts and really press uh, political candidates and the officials on some of the issues that they otherwise might not want to talk about. Uh, kind of the same philosophy that uh, WFPL is taking. We, we tried to bring that to, to television. What, what are you going to miss most about the, the, the daily grind of uh, <laughs> politics and broadcast journalism? 
you know, Rick, I might be better to answer that question in about a month because right now my first instinct is, man, I am not going to miss those minute deadlines, those uh, the the 24-hour news cycle of trying to feed the beast because I'll tell you that the one regret that I have about the direction that, that journalism in general has gone over the past decade or, or 15 years since I've been doing this is that uh, it's because of the internet and because the need of uh, to feed that beast, it's really taken some of the thought out of, of journalism, at least for me. I haven't had the luxury of spending a couple hours really trying to craft a piece the way I would like or trying to think about, all right, what happened in that committee meeting? What does this mean for the future? It's, it's been much more reactionary than, than I would have preferred. Uh, so if I if I did have a regret, that's kind of what stands out to me. But you know, I, I am going to miss uh, the that that adrenaline rush of getting a good story and finding a good story and tracking it down before anybody else does, getting a tip and running with it. Uh, that that never got old, and um, so I, I I will probably miss that. Well, we wish you well with this new chapter in your life. Ryan Alessi is now a, a full-time student at, or a student at Murray State University and up until the other day with the host of uh, Pure Politics on CN2. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Rick, thank you so much for having me, and good luck to you. Take care. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Howlett. Earlier, we heard about a six-year inquiry into gas pricing in the Louisville area, and now Backstory producer Nina Ernest steps further back in time to tell the story of the oil shocks of 1973 and how they continue to shape the world we live in today, with help from writer Andrew Scott Cooper. By the 1950s, many American companies had set up shop in the Middle East. These companies were technically partnered with the oil-producing companies, but in reality, says author Andrew Scott Cooper, Nations such as Saudi Arabia were usually subservient to the whims of the oil giants. This naturally generated an enormous amount of antagonism and resentment on the part of Iranians, Libyans, Saudis, who quite rightly said, uh, this is our resource you're exploiting and you're telling us how much money we're going to get paid for it. This is wrong. Unfortunately for them, there was only so much those countries could do about it. They got together to form OPEC in 1960. Now, Americans by that time were consuming plenty of foreign oil, but the U.S. was still also the world's largest oil producer. And President Eisenhower had instituted quotas ensuring that Americans didn't become too dependent on imported oil. All of that changed in 1973. Backstory producer Nina Ernest spoke to Andrew Scott Cooper about the year that ushered oil into the modern age. 1973 started off with a harsh winter. Many Americans were using oil to heat their homes, but it just didn't seem like there was enough to keep everyone warm. And why was that? Domestic oil wells had hit max production a few years earlier, in 1970. And with Eisenhower's quantitative import controls still in place, supply had sort of plateaued. And so by the beginning of 1973, Americans were very much feeling the discrepancy between how much oil the country had and how much it wanted to use. The energy crisis in the United States grows more acute daily. Thousands and thousands of private homes have been without heat for lengthy periods this winter. The government has... Universities shut down, schools shut down, um, airports shut down, uh, airliners flying from New York to California were forced to stop. 
in Pittsburgh and refuel. I mean, they didn't even have enough fuel to get from one side of the country to the other. And so through 73, you see this awareness that we have a real problem on our hands. America's energy demands have grown so rapidly that they now outstrip our energy supplies. As a result, we face the possibility of temporary fuel shortages and some increases in fuel prices in America. That's President Richard Nixon. He gave this speech, the the first presidential address on energy, to Congress on April 18th of that year. In it, he laid out his ideas to combat the mounting fuel shortage. And his number one plan? I am ending quantitative controls on oil imports and establishing a national... And that meant that the U.S. could now import as much oil as it wanted to from any other country in the world. So how much oil did they buy? Well, a lot. Once the quotas were gone, imports surged. By summer of 1973, the United States was bringing in 6.2 million barrels per day, up nearly 2 million from the year before. So you can see that on the one hand, he's trying to deal with a a short-term problem and he's got a short-term fix, but he creates a whole other long-term issue here of dependency on foreign oil. When oil-guzzling America jumped into the world market, a tight supply got even tighter. Prices started to climb, and the shortage got worse. Over the summer of 1973, there were already lines forming uh, outside gas stations. The country is extremely vulnerable to any interruption in the fuel supply, and it is going to take one trigger event to cause a national crisis. That trigger event came in October, October 6th to be exact. There is artillery fire on the Suez Canal, the Egyptian front, and air activity over the Golan Heights. It was the start of the Yom Kippur War, when Egypt and Syria led an Arab assault against Israel. That's when Middle East oil producers got the idea to try and sway the developed world away from supporting their enemy. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon they will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. If the Arab countries keep that pledge, it would reduce their production by almost 50% in one year. There were diplomatic Nixon brushed this threat off. Just a few days later, he authorized Congress to send a huge $2.2 billion aid package to its ally Israel. And that did not go over so well with the Arab states. In retaliation, countries like Saudi Arabia completely cut off oil supplies to the United States. The message was clear. Until you stop supporting Israel, we're going to stop sending you oil. The Yom Kippur War was over by the end of October. But the embargo's effect was just beginning. A country more accustomed to surplus than shortage has seen some strange events lately. You know, when the fuel runs out, we forget that basically our whole way of life can ground to a halt. There were uh, stampedes in the United States in grocery stores, and there were shortages of all sorts of consumer uh, products. When people go to the grocery store and find there's no food on the shelves and uh, can't find anything to wear in the stores, then they'll realize what's going on. Uh, We need a revolution, really. It's not just diesel fuel, it's everything. It's... uh... There were riots. Uh, People pulled guns on uh, fellow drivers outside gas stations. The National Guard was called out to escort fuel 
tankers driving across country because fuel tankers were being hijacked. All of this caught the United States off guard. Americans had come to take cheap oil and the bounty associated with it for granted. And on the world stage, well, as a superpower, they just weren't used to being told what to do by seemingly weaker countries. But in 1973, it became very apparent that a country called Saudi Arabia, with an autocratic monarch and only four and a half million people, becomes a petropower and is able to exert influence over the United States. Suddenly, the world's greatest power doesn't appear to be the world's greatest power again, at least not economically. At the end of December, foreign oil producers drove the point home that they were finally turning the tables after decades of exploitation. At a meeting in Tehran, OPEC doubled oil prices in one fell swoop, from nearly $6 to $12 a barrel. The Shah of Iran, who announced the decision, made the intention clear where he said, you are going to have to live in our world now. You can no longer exploit us. He says the industrial world will have to realize that the era of their terrific progress and even more terrific income and wealth based on cheap oil is finished. And that's a lesson that Western governments have never forgotten. Which leads to one final first of the year. In 1973, there seemed to be this realization. If the United States has to look beyond its own borders for oil it won't have real control over its foreign policy. So in November, Nixon announced a new initiative for the United States, energy independence. The idea was to wean America off foreign oil by 1980. And even though Nixon's project independence failed, the dream did not die. In the decades since, president after president and Congress after Congress have been in search of this elusive ideal. Four decades later, it still stands true that declaring independence is a lot easier than actually achieving it. In the last third of this century, our independence will depend on maintaining and achieving self-sufficiency in energy. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. By deregulating oil, we've come closer to achieving energy independence and help bring down the cost of gasoline and heating fuel. America is addicted to oil. Nina Ernest is producer is a producer with Backstory, which you just heard. More of their stories are at Backstory.org. That's all the time we have for today's program. Byline is produced by the WFPL News staff. Our production team led by Laura Ellis and Brad Yost. I'm Rick Howlett, and have a great weekend.